You're listening to the Classic Gamers Guild Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Classic Gamers Guild Podcast. Once again, I'm Rick and I'm here with Anna and Paul. How are you doing today? I'm great. Just got more game books in the mail, so I've been busy going through them. It's awesome. book Bonanza Week. Bonanza Week? <laughs> okay. Um, you, you you seem to not want to expand on that, so uh, <laughs> we'll we'll just take your word for it. That's Bonanza Week. Uh, Paul, how are you doing? <laughs> I'm good. I'm uh, I'm going to be careful not to back myself into a corner with words like Bonanza. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, I'm just, I'm just going to leave it there. I'm bloody good. All right. Well, just before we begin, I just want to give a quick shout out to our friends at 242, the husband and wife developing team behind upcoming indie point and click adventure game Capia, whose Kickstarter campaign started about a week ago as of time of recording, and are sitting at just about half of their crowdfunding goal. As much as we all consider Pixlart to be the golden age of gaming, their 3D adventure game has some pretty big double fine vibes to it. And they themselves say that they take a lot of inspiration from LucasArts and Sierra games amongst uh, other all-time greats like The Longest Journey, Siberia, and uh, Still Life, I think they mentioned. Uh, so please, let's make their game happen. Go to kickstarter.com and look up Capia, that's K-A-P-I-A, download their demo and give them your support. The classic gaming community especially needs to be supporting the indie devs who are trying to carry the torch forward. It is absolutely in our best interest to vote with our dollars and show that people still want these games. Anyways, on to our episode for today. We are going to be talking about educational games, something that Anna and Paul have a lot of experience with, thanks to raising children of their own. But since I have absolutely nothing to contribute to this conversation myself, I brought in a ringer. We have a special guest this week. She has a doctorate in instructional technology and her research and dissertation focused on game-based learning. Welcome to the show, Dr. Leslie Markley. Thank you for having me. Well, it's great to finally have you on. We've been wanting to uh, get you on the show for a little bit. Um, we actually had the topic, the educational games, sitting on the list for quite a while. But like I said, uh, I've been kind of ignoring it as a possible episode because I just have nothing to really say on this. But uh, uh, well... First of all, why don't you, uh, I know you're probably tired of talking about your dissertations as you've had to actually do it and present it and defend it. And that was actually not even all that long ago, but, uh, maybe you just want to like give us a little brief summary about what that, uh, about what you covered in that. Sure. So, um, for my dissertation, I was looking at game-based learning for heritage language learners, which are people that have grown up being exposed to a language other than English or a dominant language. Um, and they sometimes have a lot of anxiety around speaking the other language that they're exposed to. So um, I built this great little virtual reality mystery game. Um, and it's got an AI in it that they can talk to and have a conversation with and solve this little mystery. And it was really well received by everybody that participated in the research. Um, they thought that it was great. It did good at lowering their uh, levels of anxiety. Um, the only big problem we had, of course, with virtual reality is some of them had some anxiety about getting motion sick. So mm, that was right. a little bit of a problem. But, you know, we, we didn't have that with 
the educational games that we were playing growing up, of course. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, I think in the classic Gamers Guild, even there are so many people that are in there that did not have English as uh, their first language, and yet they speak and spell very fluently. And a lot of people attribute that to being uh, playing adventure games and sort of using that as an educational standpoint growing up, having to use the parser and, and eventually even hearing the game talk back to you things that you read and clicked on. It really is all encompassing as far as language goes. So uh, when you are looking at uh, at that side of things, is that uh, something that you take into consideration? Yeah, definitely. Um, it's, it's something that I think is a really positive effect. And one of the really great things about game-based learning and about learning from games is even if you fail at something, and I think this is something that as gamers we're all, you know, used to, failure is not, you know, if you're talking to a person in person and you mess up, it's like, oh my God, I'm going to lay awake and think about this at night for years to come. Mm -hmm. If you mess up in a game, it's, it's like, okay, well, let's do that again. You know, it's mm -hmm. a challenge right. and you can learn from from the failures and from repeating things. So I think that I think that it's definitely something. And, you know, just talking about language, um, you know, yeah, even as a native English speaker, I've learned words from adventure games. I learned the word procure from one of the fantasy star games because every time I opened a test, it was, you've procured such and such. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, yeah, because... You're having to, you're having to think about it in a few different ways. I myself, I don't think I would have really been good at English, but it ended up being the only one subject that I actually uh, excelled at a little bit. And playing the games led to reading books. I started playing games where I had to read before I actually started picking up books and reading through them in the way that you do once you, you know, get into it. So, you know, it can, it can lead you in all different directions. Yeah, definitely. And I think that that's one of the best, um, sort of ways that this type of learning can work because, you know, you can sit down and play a game where it expressly tells you, I'm going to teach you this. And, mm -hmm. okay, well, what if you don't learn that? Then, you know, was the game successful? But if it's a game where you sit down and you play it and you see something and you say, hey, that's really interesting. I want to learn more about that. You know, I, mm -hmm. I, I think probably lots of us can relate to learning about different folklore from Quest for Glory games, or, you know, stuff like that, mm -hmm. like we were talking about. Or, you know, I I've, um, I, I think even some of the, the fairy tales that got tied into the King's Quest games, I wound up going, mm -hmm. I don't know this story. Mm -hmm. I should probably mm -hmm. know this. And then, yeah, it leads to reading. And then, you know, it's it's sort of fostering the learning from that. And I think when people think, you know, edutainment or learning from games, they're thinking like very concrete, like math blasters. But, you know, it's it's not always those titles that are expressly there to teach you something that are what you're learning. Well, it's funny because I'm pretty sure, uh, not, not that's necessarily educational, but at least uh, for training software, I've never actually used uh, Mavis Beacon teaches typing, but <laughs> I actually became a fast typer because I played the old Sierra games with the text parser. So like more, more so than like, mm -hmm. I, I think I took keyboarding nine 
and I kind of sucked back then. But I really do think that even more so than learning through any um, program that taught me keyboarding was just actually using it because I wanted to and just like gained that muscle memory from yeah. typing, you know, uh, throw dagger, open door, <laughs> sit down and that sort of thing, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, we'd recently discussed in, uh, I think it was the change one thing episode. Anna, you brought up, you know, you didn't like the the earlier AGI games that didn't pause the game for you when when you typed. And in hindsight, I guess that that taught Rick and a lot of us to type fast because the game wouldn't stop for you. <laughs> so we got pretty bloody good at it. Fast and accurately. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and as far as learning from playing a, a game, I think I think the one game I probably learned the most from wasn't Edutainment, but it was it was Gabriel Knight too because I. The way Jane Jensen kind of uh, interwove history with fiction, it, she blurred this line where I was, I became obsessed on wanting to know which was fiction, what parts of that did she write, because it, it all seemed so believable. So I, I was up for nights in a row researching, you know, Ludwig and Wagner and Princess Elizabeth and Innes <laughs> and that, and became pretty efficient in something that I'll never use, uh, even in conversation besides now. But alas, I did <laughs> learn a thing. Well, I was actually uh, even mentioning, too, that uh, I, I don't think I've ever learned anything from a game that really touted itself as edutainment. Mm -hmm. So even games I really liked, like uh, Carmen Sandiego, um, I never actually learned anything from that other than just had fun playing a game. But, I, you know, I don't know what flags look like. Uh, I mean, I can't identify a flag. I know what a flag looks like, but uh, you know, I can't identify <laughs> any flags. I can't. Uh, you know, I, I don't know information about cities that they wanted me to look up i i know how to like you know look at an almanac and find the thing they want and then forget about it immediately that's the same as playing cross-country canada my god i loved that game and you learned about provinces and cities and states and the only thing i really remember from that game is that uh you uh get potatoes in pei <laughs> <laughs> but I spent a lot of time on it and I researched it and I looked into things to do with it. But no, but you know what I did learn again, you mentioned it earlier, uh, Leslie, I learned how to research. I learned how to connect things up. I learned about navigation and timing. I learned as a trucker, you need to sleep occasionally or you're going to crash. That's a very good lesson to learn. <laughs> and much better to learn it there than driving a truck. <laughs> right? <laughs> It's about that low stakes thing again. See, you know, just it's about the better environment. And yeah, Rick, I'm I'm with you on the Carmen San Diego thing. I, like, I couldn't find you know a bunch of countries on a map if you said mm -hmm. here where where is this? I have no idea. But mm -hmm. I'm really good at looking stuff up and skimming through a document really quick to find things now, which. I was really happy when I got to high school and college and discovered that that was a skill I'd picked up from Carmen Sandiego. <laughs> nice. Yeah, and reading quickly. I think all of our reading skills were just hastened due to the nature of playing computer games. Like, I understand there's static moments where things wait, but there's other times where you have to read through stuff because stuff's just going to happen. Well, I guess the one thing, um, an interesting learning experience from video games was back, I forget what grade I was, but... Uh, Police Quest was like the one game that I had, or at least the one advent the one adventure game that I had. I don't think I've even. I think it was like, um, I think it was uh, while I was still playing that, and it's like the only game that I had on my PC. And um, the teacher at school assigned us to uh, present to the class, or not really present, but like ask her at the next class two words that we found that we didn't uh, know what it meant. 
So basically we had to like, you know, do whatever. Uh, as we come across words that we don't know, we would write them down, come to class the next day, tell the teacher the words that we learned, and she'll explain what they are. So I went home and played Police Quest that night, and the next day when she asked me, uh, you know, uh, it was my turn to present two words that I didn't know, I said, uh, homicide and narcotics. <laughs> Those are big words. <laughs> yeah, and, and this is like grade four or something, like around that area, yeah, like grade three to four That's around perfect. that time. So it was like, oh, so what are the two words you learned? Homicide and narcotics. <laughs> oh, little Rick. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy at least you didn't you know claim that you learned how to drive a submarine from playing codename iceman so we have that you know <laughs> no nobody will ever claim that although you know that's the problem that's why it was so hard it was actually based on the actual training manual and how it was supposed to work because you know realism to the nth degree right 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 and you know what i did learn from that game I think it was, I'm pretty sure it was this. It was codename Iceman, but where you had to give CPR at the very beginning, mm -hmm. and you had to yeah. exactly type in from the manual like to the step. Mm -hmm. So that was that was like my first experience with that, and that was probably the only reason I knew any of the CPR stuff at age, you know, what ten, eleven, something like mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. Man, I would love to hear a story where somebody learned some sort of a medical thing like CPR from a classic computer game and actually used it to save somebody's life. Like, if that happened to you out there, listeners, please write in and let us know. And, and I'm pretty sure we would read that out on a show. See, it's, it's those unintentional <laughs> lessons. Like, the other one that people always talk about is organ frail. And yes. it's funny when I talk to, you know, friends and stuff about it, I say, what did you learn from organ frail? They say, well, I didn't really learn anything. I just shot buffalo. And, and <laughs> you know, and, and then we started talking about it. And the, the funny thing that keeps coming up, I said, well, how did you how did you finally win the game? You won at some point, right? I said, well, yeah, I, I took the banker because you get the most money. So mm -hmm. we all learned at a very early age that capitalism is the way to successfully <laughs> get to Oregon, apparently. <laughs> that was what we took away from. <laughs> but... You know, it's interesting because that game gets held up so often as, as like, you know, the first experience a lot of us had with learning from a game. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's it's not without its flaws, but it's just so interesting that it's kind of a universal experience and people took such different things away from it, even if they think they mm -hmm. didn't learn anything. Yeah, I learned uh, I learned how to gamble from Oregon Trail. Basically, every time every time it was turned my turn to to cross a river, and I rolled that bloody dice, thinking I could just get across without uh, you know, paying for a ride. <laughs> I um I didn't actually play Oregon Trail in elementary school. It wasn't until like much much later. So uh, I kind of wish I did, just because uh, instead of Homicide and narcotics. I wish I could have presented dysentery to the class. Exactly. <laughs> and actually, that's one of the interesting criticisms I've read of, of Oregon Trail is that um, the dysentery thing, I, it, apparently some historians are really angry that that became a meme. Because <laughs> it's like dysentery is a terrible, horrible way to die. And, and <laughs> Oregon Trail has taught us that, you know, haha, you died from diarrhea. <laughs> That's, you know, great to put on, you know, your friend's tombstone. But, you know, it, it was actually 
a, a terrible thing that people were getting from from dirty water sources. So mm. it's just, yeah. So I guess I learned two two things from Oregon Trail. One was how to gamble, and the other was that it is possible to shit yourself to death. <laughs> <laughs> Horrendous. Well, you know, one day you're playing Oregon Trail and you're dying of uh, dysentery, and the next day you are uh, getting eaten by a whale and thinking it's all okay. Yeah. <laughs> so long as you can, can climb up the tongue, it's fine, you know? <laughs> it's the hardest <laughs> part, man. Yeah, that was the first time I ever encountered an in-joke, and I hadn't played the game that the in-joke was based on, you know, when you pick up the bottle with the message in it from inside the whale. So it it was like that moment, I knew something was up, but I didn't really know what was up. And then later on, you know, you play Space Quest or whatever, and, and you find out that it's actually a, like an in-joke from another game, and it takes it to another level. I mean, you got to learn something from that, too. <laughs> mm -hmm. Making connections, right? Long-term connections. Mm-hmm. And speaking of that whale thing, I think one thing that we can all say we picked up from the from the game, you know, even if it's not knowledge you acquire, it's skills you acquire, patience, you know, mm -hmm. and and yeah. being wi willing to retry things because you don't know how many times I fell off that whale's tongue, but it was a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you're literally mapping it out pixel by pixel. You know, I remember that, like putting my finger on the screen. No, I have to go to this dot right here. Or I'm going to fall. And everything was slow. Like the game was slow. So I remember, you know, you you fall and it takes four or five times longer than it does nowadays. Now you're just like, bloop, oh, you fell, try again. But back then it was kind of a big deal. Like I made it this far and now I'm going to fall. Oh, man. <laughs> Even if you can't, and that's the other big deal, even if you can't do something properly, keep doing it wrong because, you know, as a human being, you you won't do it wrong forever. It's just not possible. Eventually, you'll be better. I want to know if anyone ever actually, like, played Quest for Glory, then spent a day just throwing rocks. <laughs> Outside. <laughs> we want to hear from you. <laughs> Yeah, I'd be curious to, to see the, the statistics behind it, too. Did did they improve? Did their, their aim mm. get better? Were they able to knock a nest out of a tree and potentially find lost items? Yeah. <laughs> I want to know if anybody put that lockpick up their nose. That's what I'm dying to know. <laughs> exactly. Like, how do you know when your experience level is high enough to be able to do that? Do you have to, like, just prod gently while, you know, be curious? Because there's no, like, restore button in real life. That I know of. So especially, um, you know, uh, as I mentioned before, Anna and Paul, you've actually raised kids um, with educational games. And of course, um, um, Leslie, that's your, your field of uh, specialty. Um, what are your favorite or what do you think are possibly the best examples that you can think of for uh, games out there that would really benefit um, kids in developing children or possibly even, even adults maybe? Mm-hmm. Well, not well, I think that every kid when you've got when your kid is like two and they're tired of just sitting on your lap watching you play, you pull out the original Jumpstart Toddlers game, the one that came out in the 90s, not the newer yeah. one that came out. And they teach you a cause and effect, hit a key on the keyboard, something happens on the screen, locks out even your Windows key, right? And yeah. then the other thing is you give a dog a bone and the mouse is the bone and it's giant and it's on the screen and your kid literally has to pass it left or right to make the dog eat it and get a reward. 
So it's like, that is like the fundamental thing like this. And I guess I'm thinking before touchscreens, right? Because before touchscreens, that was the first time a child could really understand that they could interact with the computer. They could make something happen. They they had not only a choice, but a difference in, in that little world on the screen. So so to me, that's a great starting place. I hear you nodding, Paul. Have you have you had experience with any of the Jumpstart games? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I started I started my son off with with Jumpstart. Um, mm-hmm. I forgot which one. It was it was early nineties. Uh, the only mm-hmm. thing I've ever found in a thrift store, and I bought it just to buy an old PC game in a thrift store. Ended up <laughs> using it, but but like you said, the the mouse thing that that was the most important because yeah, he's got you know a tablet and and touchscreens and stuff. But you know, I wanted him to also you know, understand how I'm doing what I'm doing and, and just, you know, how to use a computer and, and such. So you're absolutely right. It was everything that he's into now, like, you know, Roblox and Minecraft and this and that he, he couldn't be into if it wasn't for, for Jumpstart, just teaching him those basic fundamentals. And, and mm-hmm. the other thing that they do right, that, that every edutainment game has to do right is, is be fun enough. Cause if it's not yes. interesting, they're not into it. So Jumpstart did a really good job of that too. Yeah, quick reward for the cause and effect. Uh, I don't yeah. know if either of you, I, I was never a really big fan of games like uh, Math Blaster or especially Reader Rabbit. I found those, Reader Rabbit in particular was kind of boring. It was too much reading and not enough reward, <laughs> not enough magic and stars. I don't know, but it just, it never caught the attention of any of my kids. Same, yeah. Uh, but the Muppets Sorting and Ordering, which came out in 1997 and has clips of live-action Muppet scenes mixed with learning about numbers and letters in the alphabet or Elmo's World or Learning in Toyland, those were all great 90s educational games. If you wanted to sit with your kid and teach them that, uh, you know, they can bake cookies or have an effect on the real world, uh, uh, th- those are great places to go to. Or Tonka Workshop. It's got a keyboard tool overlay where you put like a whole literal tool set over top of your keyboard and there's like a hammer thing you can pound and a saw and things you can screw and it teaches you motor skills and uh, you get to build things in the game and get rewards like, oh, the bridge is broken. You're like, I'll help. And then you do. I don't know if uh, kids would enjoy the game as much as you seem to. <laughs> <laughs> okay, kids, time to watch me play educational games again. <laughs> but with the, nowadays with the tablets, it's stuff like Tokaboka. You know, you're, you're, it's pretty easy to teach them cause and effect. You, you put anything on the screen and they touch the screen and things happen. So my youngest was on a tablet and using screen-based things just as young, too. I think most kids are now. Yeah, I, I'd have to give a, a big shout out to to uh, a non edutainment franchise titles that that my son loves and they do a great job of teaching, which is the Microsoft Home line of of software. And they have uh, if this rings a bell to, to you, any you lot or any listeners. Um, let's see, uh, so like dangerous creatures, dogs, dinosaurs. Th- there's a whole line of them, and they're basically they're just minorly interactive books in a sense like um a, a quick a quick example is like dangerous creatures gives you a picture of the atlas and um you click where you want to go in the globe uh it shows you the animals that are indigenous to that area he picks an animal and then it'll show you like a 15 second video clip of the animal and then there's a bunch on the screen as a parent you could read to him that's no fun for either of us so we just watch the video <laughs> clips and move on but but the, the microsoft home line is really cool it, it's it's a different it's a kind of a twist in edutainment it's, it's disguised um edutainment but it's really more of like an interactive encyclopedia just talking about microsoft i think one that people 
don't think about because it's not exactly a game, but there's still so much learning potential is opening up paint and letting kids go crazy mm-hmm. with that because there's colors, there's shapes, there's the hand-eye coordination with the mouse, unless you're, you know, using a computer with a touch screen. But, mm-hmm. you know, there's, there's cause and effect of, of putting things over each other and, and, you know, they get a little bit of that object permanent stuff and there's just mm. so much that you can do with just the simple drawing programming. Oh, Did you yeah. say paint? Yeah, yeah MS, MS Paint. paint. You're so right. I used to have this, my uh, older kids, I used to do this thing when they were younger and I'd say, okay, you can draw an MS Paint for 20 minutes and whatever you have on the screen at the end of 20 minutes will print. And that meant they could do 20 different drawings, but it kept them engaged long enough. They wanted the reward of printing it to see what they made. So they'd stay longer in the program and they would either keep enhancing what they were doing or recreate it. It didn't matter, right? But they loved that program. Yeah, it's a really good one. And I, I think the, the other thing that, that I'm doing right now with my five-year-old is, is playing. So one, I guess one of my like, uh, best pieces of advice I think I got as a parent, I don't know who it came from. It's probably, you know, someone I, I never met, somebody historical and or famous or whatever. But one of the best pieces of advice I got was, was teach your child, not, not teach them what to think, but teach them how to think. And mm-hmm. so it's something I keep in the back of my mind, you know, on, on a daily basis. And that's why I really like the uh, humongous entertainment uh, games, the adventure Good games call. from Humongous, which is mm-hmm. Ron Gilbert's company after LucasArts. And they're, they're, they're not edutainment. They're just adventure games for kids. You know, mm-hmm. it's just a, it's an adventure game with easy puzzles, I guess you could say, and, and a, you know, kid friendly plot. But I, I like, I like those a lot. He likes them a lot. But I think the best thing about them is it's, it's teaching him how to think. Um, mm-hmm. and, and not to say that other pure edutainment games teach kids what to think and not how to think. I, th- I think they do both wonderfully, but I, I like the adventure game approach because it, it really is instead of him memorizing equations or things like that. Can you say equations when it's like one plus two? Is that still an equation? Yeah, Even it's if still it's an equation. That's an equation. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Nice. It just sounds so fancy for one plus two. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, I just I like how it teaches him, you know, how to think, how to solve a, pr- a problem or a puzzle. So yeah, the Freddy Fish and and Pajama Sam, especially for him mm-hmm. and uh, well, they're in yeah, order, yeah, because it's like Freddy Fish is the easiest, and then Pajama Sam and Put- well, Putt Putt's technically next, and then Pajama Sam, and then you get into Spy Fox, which is like the eleven and twelve set. So right, they right. really do cover the whole ages four to eleven kind of. They're really great games. Yeah, they are. Yeah, I actually got stuck in Pajama Sam 3, like legitimately <laughs> kind of stuck for a while. <laughs> you know, you've hit a low point when you're Googling a walkthrough for Pajama Sam. Not proud of that. They were they were a great start to getting the kids into the, into adventure games in the first place. I used them as sort of a soundboard to get them used to the idea, caring about the characters. And so, yeah, they were fun. And adventure games are really kind of a great um, conduit in and of themselves, because you've got a linear story for the most part, you know, so there's not a lot of ways that you can get too far off track, um, which is great, especially with younger learners, you know, you're not, not going to have them going off doing, you know, who knows what, but you've got kind of that nice linear story and you've got very finite goals, you know, you've got things in your inventory, you've got puzzles to solve and, they're usually pretty clear about what the goal you're working toward is. And if they do a good job, then they also make you feel really smart when you solve a puzzle. Mm-hmm. And that's, you know, I think something that, that I 
really have an appreciation for even, you know, in, in games that have puzzles now, because sometimes the puzzles are just so hard that, you know, it's, you're not doing any analytical thinking. It's just, you know, kind of crazy logic, but, um, like, just as a funny example, my husband, I got him playing, um, the room VR, which is kind of, uh, just, it's like, if you've played any of the room games, it's really just a series of puzzles upon puzzles mm-hmm. upon puzzles. And that's the whole game. That's right. And he, um, he solved one of them today that I hadn't been able to, and he was so excited about it. And I mm-hmm. don't see him get excited about stuff playing, but <laughs> it's like you feel so smart when you figure out the solution to these things. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's definitely a, a different feeling when you finish a game all on your own or a puzzle than if you look it up and finish it. It's a different kind of sense of accomplishment. We get that little dopamine hit if we do it ourselves. Yeah. It just feels so good. Yeah, and just especially when you really have to, you know, think and and I I don't know how common this is now honestly with games but I remember back when I was playing adventure games you know sometimes there would be puzzles where it would be like you know I couldn't come up with the answer and so I would go and ask family and then I'd have my family talking about this stuff I'm actually thinking about this the um, Brittle Stones and Conquest for Camelot. There were a couple yeah. that oh, yeah. I could not do. And <laughs> so I'd go and I'd get my mom and I'd say, Mom, Mom, look at this riddle. I can't solve this. And she, she'd look at it for a while. Well, let's go get your uncle. <laughs> and just turn, <laughs> and then it turns into like, you know, this, this kind of larger learning experience getting family involved. Yeah, I had the exact same experience with that game. And, you know, to this day, I love those riddles. And I've always loved riddles. It sent me on a quest to look into more riddles. I'd go to the library and get books about riddles. And I actually thought I was so smart because not only did I know them, but I knew the answers and none of my friends did. And it was neat. Interesting. I'm not sure if this really affects learning or anything like that. But I do notice, uh, having played a few adventure games, there's one thing that does kind of... um, uh, it's a bit of a pet peeve of mine and it's kind of related in that uh, there are sometimes when there'll be a puzzle and I've already like solved it in my head. I'm feeling like real proud of myself that I know the answer to this thing. And then when the characters will just like explain the answer before I can even do anything where it's mm-hmm. like, Oh, you know, it's like, Oh, uh, I have a hammer in my inventory. Let's say I, I need to break this rock. I, I, I know this is like really simple. I just can't think of anything off the, off the top of my head, but it's like, oh, we, we need to break this rock. And I'm like, aha, I have a hammer. I can use the hammer on that rock. And then, you know, one of the characters will be like, hey, didn't you find a hammer a while ago? Why don't you use that to break the rock? And like, <laughs> oh, no. thanks. That, that was, yeah, I know. Thank you for giving me the chance to actually do that. So I would say it definitely does have a negative impact on learning because, um, kind of geeking out about education for a minute, what you want to keep learners in is called the zone of proximal development, which is this kind of perfect state of learning um, where you start going into kind of like a state of flow where you lose track of time and you, but you get there by having a perfect balance of challenge and reward. And it's a really hard thing to do and to craft right. And when you take away that challenge, you get it, sided where you know well now it's like you said now it's not rewarding anymore and it takes them right out of that zone so Mm, i think that i think that it's um 
you know, in in that sense, I think it would negatively impact it. And I think it's also kind of, I would say maybe demoralizing because oh, completely, yeah. You know, it it's like I've played games where the tutorial at the beginning has just driven me crazy because they'll, you know, it's like you said, you've got a hammer in your inventory and you've got three people telling you, have you tried using that hammer yet? Well, <laughs> give me a minute. I'm working on it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah you feel so, annoyed instead of accomplished. <laughs> yeah. I think that yeah. happens a few times throughout uh, Ace Attorney. I think that's like the one that I'm thinking of where, you know, you got to investigate the clues to find the contradictions. And then like in the course of like um, a stream of dialogue, they'll say, okay, here's what we need to do. I'm like, I know how to do that. Cause I remember the detail. I know exactly how to counteract this. And then they'll be like, you might want to check that letter that you found. I'm like, <laughs> thanks. Yeah. I know that. I, I, I'm the one who found it. I, I know what's in there. <laughs> do you realize I'm a Sierra gamer? Come on. <laughs> <laughs> not not to say I don't love those games because they are I, I do absolutely love those games, but they're they're they are very guilty of doing that quite a few times per game. You know, and I could never get into those and I think that might have been part of the reason why, just because mm. I, I think and I don't know if it was just me being misinformed, but I was thinking them of them as I I'm having to solve this mystery and figure out this crime. And then when you're going and giving me clues like that, well, that's not much of a mystery, is it, then? Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, what what's the point of the game if you're taking that thrill of figuring it out away from me? Yeah. yeah. Is it just like a story, an interactive story, then, or is it a game, too? It's a game. Mm -hmm. um, and I it mean, is actually really fun, because the, the writing and the comedy is on point. Mm -hmm. Like, I... I'm laughing out loud when I play those games. I think that's kind of what keeps me going through it. Mm -hmm. And some of the puzzles are actually pretty good. It's not, it's not like they're all like that, but I just know that there are times where I am really like stoked, like, okay, come on, finish talking so I can present this evidence because I know exactly what I want to do. Mm -hmm. And before they finish talking, one of the characters will like lean over to me and be like, hey, you might want to check the the murder weapon. There's something there. It's like, Ah, oh. <laughs> that would be annoying. You just want you want to shout at the computer. I already knew that. Like he's, he's, he's trying to have a, I don't know, trying to prove a point as if the computer is sentient or something in that moment. Like I just want you to know that I knew that. Yeah. Yeah. I want to sneer at you a little bit, computer, for telling me that, and I want you to feel that sneer. <laughs> it's too bad because in that in those games. Uh, those games are really like some of the most rewarding feelings that I've had from solving puzzles. Mm -hmm. Because when you do when they don't give it away, when they do kind of uh give you a chance to figure it out, and I do like kind of like look through all the stuff in my inventory, I'm like, ah, that's the thing I presented and then I like throw it into the guy's face. It's like <laughs> it really is rewarding and it's mm -hmm. great when that happens. And it that that just makes it worse when they at those times when they deprive you of that. Yeah. <laughs> That's actually one reason that I was kind of intrigued by that whole law quest thing that came up because yeah. <laughs> I feel like we haven't had a, and I know this is deviating a little bit from the educational thing, but I feel like we haven't had a really solid um, kind of courtroom mm -hmm. game because, you know, on one end, you know, we've got Ace Attorney, which is doing, you know, like you were saying, occasionally giving you too much on the clues. 
And the only other one I'm thinking mm-hmm. of off the top of my head is Danganronpa, which is at the opposite end of the scale, which doesn't give you <laughs> any clues, and it puts you under a time limit. And oh, God. It, you know, it, ju- it just gets increasingly stressful watching the timer countdown and going, I'm still not making this connection. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I feel like we need a middle of the road on this. Maybe, maybe mm-hmm. there needs to, and, you know, I maybe that would spark interest for people. Maybe that, mm-hmm. well... I don't know that we need more lawyers in the world, but maybe it would start kind of interest. <laughs> maybe there. Well, we, could, kind of... we could sympathize a little bit more with the lawyers if we knew what was going on on their side of things with a little bit of accuracy and humor. Mm-hmm. You know, for games that I think are satisfying, I can look at my 10-year-old and I can tell you the holy trio of games. And these are the games that he essentially lives off of. And uh, and that would be uh, Civilization Three. Panzer General and Heroes of Might and Magic. Well, okay, four sprinkled with liberal doses of Minecraft, just in creative as well as some uh, player versus player. Mm-hmm. So I lied. It's not a holy trio. It's a it's a holy quadruple of games. <laughs> <laughs> but literally, that that is what he lives for. And and he has different people in the household that he'll play different games with. He'll play Minecraft with his dad, and they've got the city they've been spending years building. It's huge. It has you know ways to to transport yourself. Uh, you can go on trains above or below ground. There's mines, there's gyms, there's all that, you know, civilization it, or Heroes of Might and Magic. We can play Hot Seat. So he plays it with all the members of the family. So here we are having a conversation over the breakfast table about worldwide politics and, and nobody even knows that any of us are learning, but we all are. So so that's great for kids and adults. Yeah, I think when when the the education is is snuck in, that that's perhaps the ideal situation. You can get away with otherwise, you know, when they're younger, uh, you know, four, five, six, seven, perhaps with with things like Jumpstart, where where it's mm-hmm. just in your face edutainment. But I, I think the games you mentioned, Anna, that's kind of ideal, especially when when you get into I don't know seven to fourteen or whatever. It's it's probably mm-hmm. better off that that you sneak it in and, and you don't realize you're learning because I, I think an edutainment game. To, to today's youth could potentially just be a red flag. <laughs> like, hold yeah. on, man, this is the weekend. I'm not supposed to be doing a learning right now. Yeah, if I gave him like a jumpstart grade five, he'd look at me and be like, are you serious? <laughs> 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 just play it when you want to. Oh, okay, I'll get right to that, mom. It teaches them <laughs> to play outside. <laughs> just what you were saying about sort of sneaking in the the learning in the entertainment. I think mm-hmm. that's really critical, especially with, um, you know, like you were saying, with older kids, but also with adults, which, you know, mm-hmm. I think I think a lot of people kind of discount, you know, oh, well, you don't really learn things from games as an adult, but you absolutely can. Mm-hmm. And I think mm-hmm. that that's just when it's really critical to try to, you know, sneak it in as fun and then realize later, oh, I learned something from that. Because, you know, when we're adult learners, we already have, we, we have life experience. You know, we, we kind of have in our mind our way of doing things. And, you know, oh, I, I should know this. So, you know, having it snuck in, that, that's kind of great. And for me, I was just thinking the last game that I really, really learned something from was Portal. Because when I took physics mm. in high school, my teacher, bless his heart, was also the football coach. And he was explaining everything in terms of football. I could have cared mm. less about football. 
But, you know, he, he mm-hmm. would say, okay, vectors. So if a quarterback gets tackled at 30 degrees and I'm just sitting there going, huh? Mm-hmm. I, <laughs> I, I have no idea what you're talking about. But then, you know, years later, I was playing Portal and I realized I was starting to kind of think about, you know, oh, and, and did, you know, momentum and preservation of momentum and, mm. and all that. And, and then I start, I, realized and i told my friend i said i think i just learned more about physics from playing this game than i did from my high school class <laughs> right so and you got some great music to play along with at the same time yes and biting commentary witty biting yes. commentary which <laughs> you know I'm, I'm pretty sure that wouldn't have made it any better in a classroom setting but in a game oh, it yeah. was great in a game yeah <laughs> Te- so- teaching teaching you to endure bullying Mm -hmm. We play a game like Space Quest and we're like, oh, Roger, you're such a ninny. But at the same time, you know, the narrator's talking to you. And we love it. (laughs) Oh, yeah. I'm just curious, what, for the three of you, what do you think's the last time you actually learned something from a game? Um, And Rick, uh, I know you said that you, you don't know if you've ever learned anything from, you know, yeah, um, I, I think I learned from Ultima 7 that you bake bread by dumping water on flour and throwing it into a fire. Spot on, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> every it. time I make it, that's my technique, Ultima style. <laughs> it can also be blood or milk. <laughs> you just need something wet and something dry. I mean, mm-hmm. two basic ingredients there. Maybe you'll get like a Michelin star in cooking, Mama, for doing that much effort. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, otherwise, for a serious answer, I'll have to think about that for a second. So I'll defer to the rest of you for now. I always, I think I'm always learning tactics because I'm playing a lot of these uh, war-based games. Even uh, we were playing the new Axes and Allies game uh, that was available on Steam. And I'm learning about tactics. Like I always end up uh, separating my troops and dividing them up too much and then push comes to shove at the end when I need a power army all my little armies end up getting dwindled off into nothing so lately I've been learning to try to keep power in the capital and uh, and not to spread my troops too thin when I'm trying to defend my borders and and to really try to focus more on defending important borders versus defending all my borders and you know that's kind of a strategy I, I hadn't thought about before and you know a lot of these strategies that we learn in games or in sports you can transfer into real life like don't leave your stuff unprotected don't scatter your resources too far across the map or you, when you actually need to have the energy to get work done you won't be able to pull your resources together so that's important for me to learn and pick your battles <laughs> definitely pick your battles and if you don't pick your battles right other battles will probably pick you and and if there's a problem and you don't solve it it'll still get solved you just won't be able to have input on how it's solved yeah those are a lot of good ones like especially don't don't leave your your stuff unprotected i think i learned mm-hmm. from leisure suit larry to wear a condom <laughs> exactly example, if you don't can... your your privates will flash and then you know you'll have to get remade that's bad or, or even worse, there'll be a, a, the murmurings of a child in the background of a podcast that Rick has to constantly edit out. So it's <laughs> important. Oh, yeah, that keeps happening to me, too. Jeez. <laughs> I, I learned that water can sometimes certainly. <laughs> certainly can. The jokes around here certainly. 
Well, Rick, there's there's something you know you were talking about about um, playing Fantasy Star Two, and I was just thinking about that the dungeons and the mapping and you know oh, keeping track of of where you've been and and which way you're going and being able to read a map. I mean, that's a skill I definitely got from that game. It was right, you know, being able to sit and figure out where the heck I was going. Mm-hmm. Damn straight. I was the only girl I knew that could read a map. And on every car ride we ever took, I read a map and I would draw a map sometimes when we were going places. And of course, that's all because I had to draw maps to play like all of the games that we ever played. Yeah, <laughs> yeah I guess I guess I always think of uh, I, I guess your point is that I always think of learning as just like something I didn't know. And now I know as opposed to like developing a skill. So, you know, obviously, by this point in time, I've read maps and followed maps but like uh you know using them you know with the grid paper and the dungeons and uh uh would be it fantasy star 2 or dungeons and dragons or something like that it's uh it's just exercising that skill and just kind of making you uh gradually better at it without you realizing without me realizing because uh yeah i would never have thought about that mm-hmm. until you just uh, put that in perspective yeah, good point yeah it's not always the the classroom book type things sometimes it's just those skills that we pick up like you know like you said at the very beginning just the being able to type quickly or you know the agi games where it didn't pause it for you being able to point your character in a direction and type while they're walking and and yeah. you know multitask <laughs> and have that hand eye coordination yeah it's because of sierra agi i can walk and chew bubble gum at the same time you know it's, <laughs> it's part of the foundation uh, all right, so just before we wrap up, any final thoughts on educational games or education in games? Yeah, I guess I guess my closing thought on it is just, you know, always always be willing to learn things. And, and the next time you play a new game, think about those things where you say, oh, I want to know more about that, or even just something you want to try, because... Um, you know, I think that a lot of times we think, you know, immediately we hear learning from games and it's like, oh, this is going to be boring. And it's, it doesn't have to be, and it doesn't have to be, you know, learning facts. It can be learning skills. And the example that I'm thinking of to end with is when I played Dagger of Amon Ra, I had Mm. never heard. Uh, and and you're gonna laugh when you hear this. It wasn't the cool Egyptology. It it wasn't anything like that. I had never heard of using a water glass to spy at a door before. And so when Christmas came, <laughs> when when Christmas came, I got I tried I think every glass in the kitchen trying to listen at doors to see if I could find out what I was getting for presents. And I was deeply disappointed to find out it didn't work as well as it did in the game. But, you know, it was, it was again, that learning experience, you know. It was something that I never knew you could do and I never mm. would have thought to do. Well, unfortunately, I do think that's all the time we have for this episode. But thank you very much, uh, Dr. Mark Lee, for joining us in this conversation and uh, uh, enlightening us on, on a lot of different things that I didn't really think of before. So I guess... I learned something from talking to you. <laughs> I, enjoy, I definitely enjoyed being on with you guys tonight and, and talking about this because I think it is a topic that people don't always give a lot of thought to, but it's, it's something that mm-hmm. can be a, a lifelong thing for us as gamers. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you very much again for joining us. Uh, you're always welcome back on the show anytime. And until then, uh, we will see you around in the Classic Gamers Guild Facebook group. Indeed. Now, uh, just before we get to the closing of the show, uh, I just wanted to read out an email that I received in regards to our, um, I guess by now it's a couple weeks ago. It was in regards to our interview with Ken and Roberta Williams. And we received this email from uh, Josh Koss, who uh, some of you may remember was a guest uh, on an episode about Quest for Glory quite a while back. Uh, it was actually a really good episode. We really liked having him on. He's a good friend of ours. Uh, so if you want to go back and find that, look for the episode on Quest for Glory with um, Quest for Glory superfans, Josh Koss and um, Hope Codman. Um, so he writes to us saying, hey, Gilders, Josh Koss here, uh, a.k.a. Orion, previous guest of the show and head admin of the Facebook group. That is correct. He is actually the head admin of the Classic Gamers Guild Facebook group. Uh I'm sending in this email to talk about something that's kind of been on my mind after the uh, the Ken and Roberta episode. It's regarding the discussion of Mask of Eternity from that episode. Uh, other Sierra games without a number in their title on the box is Quest for Glory 4. The box only reads Quest for Glory Shadows of Darkness. By your argument of just what's on the box, then there's Quest for Glory 1, 2, 3, and 5, and one unnumbered one that fits anywhere. Uh... I need to note sarcasm in that statement. Uh, then there's Colonel's Bequest and Dagger of Amun-Ra, which have no numbering convention to them, but fans will frequently refer to them as Lorabo 1 and 2. You guys already mentioned Police Quest 4. Besides, Roberta Williams herself named it King's Quest 8 during your interview. I'll forgive you for not remembering, because if I was talking to her, I'd black out as well and would have to listen to it again to find out what I said. Uh, I will agree that it fits better if you think of it in terms of Solo or Rogue One to the rest of the Star Wars movies, but to discredit it as part of the series numbering because of what's on the box is just arguing semantics. And that's the end of the email. And um, I'll start on this one just by saying that everything uh, that you said, Josh, is accurate. Those are facts. Um, that is 100% true and correct. Um, so the only thing I would say to address this is uh, to make sure you don't misunderstand the intent behind why we say to not consider them as numbered in the series. In terms of King's Quest Eight and Police Quest Four, I think it is in their benefit to not consider them numbered because the number doesn't show up on the box because it is actually advantageous to them and defends the way that they stray from the rest of the series. So a lot of people are actually disappointed in Police Quest Open Season and uh, King's Quest Mask of Eternity because they are so different and veer so far away from the previous games in that series. And I usually bring it up as defense, not to discredit them, but to say, hey, these aren't continuations of that story. They are set in the same universe, absolutely. So I, I, I'm not trying to kick them out of the universe. They absolutely are. Uh, I just say that, hey, you know, if you're having problems thinking of Police Quest Open Season as being like, oh, it's too different, or if you think of King's Quest Mask of Eternity as, oh, that's not like the other King's Quest, it might help just to say, hey, maybe if you don't think of it as Police Quest 4, or if you don't think of it as King's Quest 8, just think of it as these are games that just happen to be in the same universe, but are completely different stories and are free to play with the formula and try different new things. Uh, that's all I'm getting at when I say, hey, you know what? These aren't actually numbered. Um, of course, you know, 
there there is a lot of inconsistency. I cannot explain to you why Quest for Glory Shadows of Darkness does not say Quest for Glory 4. Um, I never worked at Sierra. I've never asked anyone who worked there about this in particular. Um, I, I don't know what their answer would be. I don't think, uh, for whatever reason, that they chose not to say Quest for Glory 4 on the box, I don't think is necessarily applicable to Police Quest or King's Quest when they did it. So I I don't know, but I I really think that these are um, just isolated incidents and not necessarily tied into some greater scheme of uh, numbering conventions and some like, uh, uh, like, I don't think it's deliberate in that way. So um, again, I, I'm not trying to take these games down or to discredit them as being part of their series. I'm just saying that if you remove the number from them, because, you know, on the box, they're not there, it makes it easy to remove the numbers from them. It just makes it easier to accept that they are wildly different from the predecessors. And I would just add to that, that uh, by that by that logic, which I agree with, and I, I think it's a nice way to look at it because Police Quest 4 and King's Quest 8 are so removed mm-hmm. that it's, you know, it is in their defense and it does explain why the series diverts so much from the originals that, that Space Quest 6 should be, uh, should just be Space Quest the Spinal Frontier and that would, <laughs> yeah. that would solve a lot of issues and, uh, and also, uh, yeah, I would also say that there there is just seven King's Quests and then Connor's Quest. That's it. <laughs> you know, it's true, although on the off side of that, if King's Quest Eight was Mask of Eternity and I didn't think of it as King's Quest Eight, I wouldn't have bought it. Would you not have bought it if it was just King's Quest Mask of Eternity? I don't know that I would have. Well, I guess maybe because it it just, well, yeah, I know that. But in my head, I was looking forward to King's Quest Eight, and that's that's the whole reason I bought it. I wouldn't, okay, so I'm reading the Outlander series, and I love all the books in it, but occasionally she puts in these little feeder stories that are the stories between the books. And Mm -hmm. I don't read them because they're not necessary, and they're not really a part of the actual lore of what I'm looking into maybe or maybe it's not a part of the main storyline for that reason mm-hmm. if it was just King's Quest Mask of Eternity and I didn't think of it as 8 I might not have bought it yeah mm-hmm. and that's fine you, you can think of it that way if you want um, whatever helps you enjoy something better mm-hmm. is correct exactly if you want to think of it as King's Quest 8 then do so if you want to think of it as Police Quest 4 then do so I don't want to um, actually not at all <laughs> I think of it Mask of Eternity is completely separate now I'm like no if you didn't consider it a part of the series it's it's much better off as as, as soon as you try to think of it as being part of the series Police Quest 4 included uh, no so on the one hand I wouldn't have played them but on the other hand would I have been missing much if I didn't <laughs> I don't know. You yeah. tell me. You're, you actually liked King's Quest Eight. So. I did. I liked it for what it was, but I didn't like. It would still be my eighth most favorite King's Quest game. Yeah, you liked the it once you got over the disappointment. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the other one too, I want to touch on real quick is Lorabo One and Two. Uh, I actually really kind of. I'm not so argumentative about it because I get what people mean when they say Lorabo One and Two. But I have never actually considered them Lorabo 1 and 2. I've no. considered them Colonel's Bequest Same. and Dagger of Amun-Ra. Totally. And they are Lorabo Mysteries. Mm-hmm. And I think it's like you know, maybe if you dig back, you can possibly find that I said like LB1 or LB2 just for the sake of abbreviation because I didn't want to type it all out. Mm-hmm. Right. But even still, I will more often than not refer to them as CB and DOAR. Mm-hmm. Like I, I don't really 
uh, call them Lorbo one or Lorbo two. Uh, but at the same time, you know, like you said, arguing semantics, I'm not going to argue semantics because if somebody says Lorbo one, I'm not going to be like, huh? What are you talking about? <laughs> right. I don't know what Lorbo one, which one, this Colonel's bequest or this dagger of Amun Ra. Like, I'm not one of those people. <laughs> like, I'm not, I know what you mean. So I'm going to let it pass. I'm not going to argue saying like, no, you're not allowed to call it that. You must call it. It's, you know, I, I, I'm just going to, you know, if you say Lorbo one, I know what you mean. <laughs> and maybe pos- it's very possible I might have said LB1 or LB2 just to quickly uh, get through it because typing on a phone sucks and I hate it. I usually want to get through it as quick as possible. But um, most of the time, I will still call it CB and DOAR or Dagger mm-hmm. and um, and leave it at that. So, yeah, I, I don't consider it Lorbo 1 and 2. Um, not that they aren't spiritually 1 and 2 of a Lorbo series, but I, I because it's never been on the box, I, I just never regarded it as, as official titling. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'd never actually thought about it before, how, how they neither of them have a number, and it's making me wonder, again, not that it matters at all, because I think they're isolated mysteries, isolated mm-hmm. episodes, whatever you want to call it, and they're, they're both just amazing. So, it, again, it doesn't matter at all, but that being said, just because it's fun to speculate on old things that don't leave us much to speculate on anymore, is, I wonder if there's clues or, or direct, I mean, not even clues, but just any direct... uh one way or the others in, in, in say, Dagger of Amon Ra that, that lets you know that it was later in her life. Because I, I feel like there's something that where you, f- well, you feel like she's of, older and has grown, but I'm not yeah, sure if that's a feeling or if it was said. Because um, in Colonel's Bequest, she was still a student at Tulane University. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in yeah. Dagger of Amon Ra, she has moved to New York. I believe it was New York. Was it New York? She, she moved, I believe, to... Um, um well anyways at any rate she's now in her career as a journalist right got it okay that's good yeah and actually it's really thanks for pointing that out and that's a really good way to do it too because like i said I, I felt like she had grown but it wasn't uh it wasn't overly on the nose you know i didn't feel like i was told that it was just kind of a natural mm-hmm. you know mm-hmm. now my character is, is a little bit older a little bit wiser mm-hmm. well i think there wasn't enough connection because uh they that's why i never really considered them one and two it's not that they aren't. Of course they are. What, you know, Dagger takes place after Colonel's Bequest, and it's the same character. I'm not saying that they aren't connected, but um, there seem to... She seems to have no real recollection of the Colonel's Bequest. <laughs> like, they, they don't seem to do anything to acknowledge that the original game happened. <laughs> so I, I just take it as sort of like, here's one, here's another, same character, just do whatever. Mm-hmm. So I would have loved in Dagger after after the first body was found for her just to scream, "Oh my God, it's happening again!" For <laughs> <laughs> her to just not even respond by that point, she's just so like numb to it all by now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh crap! <laughs> not more deaths, jeez. <laughs> but yeah, so in the end, yeah, it, it is arguing semantics. It's not even arguing semantics. It's just sort of using semantics to say, "Hey, you know what? Whatever makes you feel better." Just believe that, mm-hmm. you know, we, we can defend it by saying, like, if you thought that open season was a good game, just not a police quest. Or if you think that, you know, um, I've heard people say Mask of Eternity was a pretty good game, just not a King's Quest. Uh, you can defend it just by saying, hey, it it's not in the progression because it's called King's Quest Mask of Eternity. It's mm-hmm. called Police Quest Open Season. And 
it can help you enjoy it a little bit more if you know that it was just sort of like, you know, they have the right to detour and they have the right to do something different. So yeah, mm-hmm. that's all that's all I'm trying to say by that. Um, anyways, so, uh, what do you think about all of this stuff that just, <laughs> we've just discussed, we've covered a lot of ground here. Uh, let us know. We are on Facebook. We are a page and we are a group, uh, the Classic Gamers Guild. You can write us by email at mail at classicgamersguild.com. You find us on Twitter at the CG Guild. Find us on Instagram at CGG Podcast. We are on Patreon. If you would like to support the show, just look up Classic Gamers Guild over at patreon.com. Uh, we thank all of our supporters. We have uh, we have a fair number now. Uh, every little bit counts, so it does add up. It covers our monthly bills at the very least. Uh, but there are also a couple in our extra special thanks tier, namely Mark Fillion and Jay Holmes. Thank you guys so much. Uh, your contributions are very generous, and we really, really appreciate those. Uh, so... Um, that aside, any final thoughts? I think, uh, play games, play games with your kids, play the games you enjoy and, uh, and they'll pay attention if you're into classic games and you get them when they're young enough, uh, they'll still think they are cool. Just, uh, don't introduce the classic games when your kid is 10 years old. It's too late by then. That's my yeah. final thought. Yeah. And if they don't like it, say it's either this or making a pair of Nikes for somebody. So sit down and bloody enjoy it. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, can that, can we keep that? Okay. Um, uh, what else? Bloody back, uh, back Capia. Don't forget to back Capia. Uh, I said it the second time yes. weirdly because the first time I think I said black Capia. That's, that's not the name. That, that is exactly what you said. And I was thoroughly confused. <laughs> back. Capia, right? It's it, it actually looks really cool, and I like that you can play as two different characters from two different perspectives on the story. So it's a really neat little dynamic I've not seen in a while, if ever. So, buddy, back that and uh, don't do murder. 